0: The contents of The Lawless Files include descriptions of violence and themes not suited for immature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Claims made by sources do not necessarily represent the views of The Lawless Files or Leadhound Publishing, LLC. Doug Teal died in July of 2010. Karen Langston, Doug's mother, believed from day one that her son died of homicide and not a car accident and there is evidence to support that claim, which we've discussed in previous episodes. In my mind, the biggest evidence that supports that Doug was dead or at least unconscious before he was hit by the car is that his body suffered major injuries in places that were not struck by the car. Again, to refresh your memory, Doug Teal's head was struck by the right tires as he lay in the eastbound lane of Highway 72, close to four in the morning. The driver of the car swerved to the left, to try to avoid the collision. Langston says the coroner initially told her he was, quote, down and expired, unquote, before being struck by the vehicle. Karen says she was told this twice, but when the coroner made his written report, he wrote that the cause of death was consistent with being hit by a vehicle, noting that the internal bleeding from the organs not struck by the vehicle contributed to his death. Additionally, Karen learned that Doug had a beef with a couple of guys she calls bullies in the Fredericktown area over women that these men had dated. Investigative reports obtained by the Lawless Files show that four people came forward shortly after Doug's death to report that a man named Fred Wood was angry with Doug and may have killed him. Madison County Sheriff Department Investigator Rebecca McFarland confronted Wood about claims being made that Wood had threatened others saying that he was going to do to them like what happened to Doug. Wood denied these claims and his girlfriend provided an alibi. And the case essentially went nowhere, except for the hit and run charges against the driver who struck Doug, charges that did not stick. So again, Doug was lying in the road when he was hit, his head was struck proven by evidence collected on the car and at the scene. No obvious observable outward injuries to the rest of Doug's body were noted by the coroner, but an internal examination showed Doug's sternum was cracked, he had broken ribs and lacerated organs that could not have been caused by the car. The investigation went nowhere. And it's been assumed since 2010 that Doug died from a pedestrian car accident. And that just wasn't good enough for Karen. So she kept seeking information as did Doug's brothers, and Karen believed that law enforcement was involved in a potential cover-up. I'm not covering the conspiracy as part of this podcast, as I don't have enough to go on, at least not yet. But what happened to Karen in the aftermath of Doug's death, as she continued to try to find answers, did actually happen. This we can confirm and talk about. As if losing Doug wasn't hard enough, Karen would lose her house to a fire, then face a criminal battle in court, that would endure for more than two years. Karen lost her home, but she beat the charges. And despite all of that, she's still fighting to get someone to investigate her son's death as a homicide. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files.
1: Lewis,
2: I'm
1: going to tell you something, you know, um... <laughs> My son, uh, I said, there's a reason to investigate this. I said, I'm going to prove to you that, you know, my son was not only killed, but that it was murder. I said, um, I said, this is foul play all the way and I'm going to prove to you. Um, I wasn't home, but nobody knew this. Okay. On Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and 4th of July are just two of my family times when all my boys are home and, and that we're very close and, and we do stuff. Well, my second oldest, he was going to Chicago to visit his sister, his and Doug's sister. Actually, I have two sons by that father and, and, um, Doug had found his sister on the internet and she had come for a visit and, fantastic time they got to finally meet their sister uh, that was not long before Doug's death and uh so he was going to Chicago to her house and we decided mom why don't you come with me um, just to get away from uh, you know all of this so I did the only two that was home was my husband and my youngest son and so but nobody knew that I was out of town or that the other son was out of town or anything like this and uh um, Next thing you know, they had just dozed off. They were watching TV together. They had just dozed off and the house was full of smoke and uh, they were trying to find their way out. Oh, my gosh. And you said this was
0: like 3 o'clock, early in the
1: morning? Right,
0: right. Between 2 and 4 sometime?
1: Right. And so the girl next door is actually doing a video of it. My husband called over there and said, hey, you know, uh, call 911. My house is on fire. Or he knocked on the door. I don't. I'm not sure exactly how he contacted, but he got hold the neighbors to call 911. And the sheriff David Lewis and the detective Rebecca McFarland showed up, along with the fire trucks and everything. And I mean, this place burnt for hours. It was huge. It was 50 years of my life, and it didn't even make it in the newspaper. Our whole case was hush hush. Nobody. Okay, at the time, the sheriff's department and the city department. Uh, The county, I'm sorry, the county and the city were in the same building and they fought. They couldn't stand each other, which, you know, I never did understand that. I thought police worked together, but um, nobody was allowed to talk to us about our case uh, except for David Lewis, Rebecca McFarland and this Wendell Blue. If I called in there with any, it didn't matter what the information was. If I called in there with uh, the most important information you could think of, nobody could talk to me about it if David Lewis, Rebecca McFarland or Wendell Blue didn't take the call. And that was awfully strange. Was
0: there any investigation done? What how, what, what, was determined the cause?
1: Um, they say that it started in the bathroom. Uh, they want to say that uh, maybe Jeff uh, flicked an ash in the trash can and started or something. And no, he's, yeah. you know, it had done started. It was on the it was at a blaze. They
0: say that started right from
1: the door, bedroom door. Oh, did they? He just—he just came in from work. He just said that they had made his. Their first statement was that it started right in front of their bedroom door.
0: After this interview I had with Karen, she sent me over a copy of. The investigative report regarding the fire the incident report which had the cherokee pass fire department letterhead on it said the cause of fire was a probable electric heater and that evidence supported that the fire started in the bathroom area the fire was reported at 2 47 a.m and firefighters battled the flames until 7 44 a.m that's right at five hours When I inquired to the Madison County Sheriff's Department about documents regarding the investigation, I was told that the Sheriff's Department did not handle the investigation and that we should inquire with the Cherokee Pass Fire Department, which is what Karen shared with me. The report is one page and it includes no information as to why this conclusion was reached.
1: And this is just my theory. I stood over after the house had burned. I had stood over at the neighbor's fence and just kind of looked at that house and just pictured if somebody wanted to throw like a gasoline bottle up there with a rag sticking out, for instance, right where the fire was burning is right where it would most likely land because of the way the house was made. The, there was a spot that brought the roofing right down into a point right there, and it would have been easy. So
0: when was, uh, can you give me when
1: this happened? This was Thanksgiving weekend, 2010.
0: So four months
1: after they killed, four
0: in four months you've lost your son and your home. Oh my
1: goodness! And the, the thing is, is everybody was so cold about it. I mean, whatever you know. I mean, this was my hometown. Nobody pitched in to see if they couldn't help us this or that or the other. Everybody was scared to death to talk to us. Um, I had a finally had an appointment with the mayor, which I thought I was getting somewhere. She was watching like over her shoulder, like she was being watched while I was being there or something. Um, She would, you know, Karen, I don't see anything I can do for you. And I said, well, could you do maybe a fundraiser? I said, we have nowhere to live. We've lost everything. I can't do that. Then everybody would expect it. I said, excuse me, how many kids are, how many people do you know whose sons are brutally beaten to death and their house are burnt down? You know, I said, okay, well, I don't, I don't see that you can help me at all. She, This woman did not even know if she rated higher than the town commissioner or the sheriff. Or, And like I said, she was so paranoid through this whole conversation that something that I thought was gonna get me somewhere, absolutely, I left there just in tears, feeling like it was just another door in my face. I mean, and the story, I couldn't get anything out. Anything that I had put on the um, internet was taken off immediately. I mean, everything I put on there was immediately taken do, off. Do people think you're crazy? Yeah, well, they did. I have people apologizing to me now saying that they thought that uh, Doug being hit by a car was in the story. I really do apologize. I wanted to speak up, but I was scared to. And it's like, I mean, yeah, I thought I was going crazy because also there was not a call I didn't make and off. I mean, I wrote letters to the, the what is three federals and four state or vice versa. And, and I wrote, I mean, I wrote letters galore and stuff. People that would call to um, inquire about it, the calls went straight to the sheriff and the sheriff would tell them that I'm just a mother that can't accept the death of my child. Yeah. see that. I'm sure that happens a lot. Well, So I was just written off by most people. And you know, and myself, Then I end up, okay, uh, I won't let it go. I'm the only person who's now I don't know that there's other kids at the time, but I'm the only person I know that won't shut up because I just know this is foul play. I know this is murder and I won't shut up about it. This shouldn't be my life. I won't let it go. And the next thing I know, I'm arrested along with my two oldest boys for felonious restraint, which is holding somebody against their will. Well, after our house burnt down, we stayed in um, We, my husband and I ran into a, a man that knows my husband and he was just getting ready to put a house up for sale on West Marvin, which was his mother's house. She had just passed away. He said, I've heard what happened. He said, um, where are you guys staying? We said we're staying wherever we could. He said, you go stay in my mom's house. I haven't put it on the market yet. He said, if you're there three or four months, we'll talk rent, but don't worry about rent or anything. Just, there's your home. Go stay there. We were very appreciative of it. We were trying to get out of Madison County in the first place because there another thing, incidents that took place. Uh, a couple of people came to us and had overheard conversations that we should have bumped Langston off when we seen her sitting out in her deep in front of the uh, library. Um, because she's causing so much trouble and stuff so we pretty well knew there was a hit out on me and that we needed to get me out of Madison County we ended up leaving that house on Marvin and purchasing a house in Park Hills
0: which so what, put us what, what, in what's St. Francis this, County what's with this charge though
1: of holdings okay so while we're living on West Marvin we're kind of right in the and we're kind of right in the target of all these rough people. And my two oldest boys decided to take a walk to a friend's house. And I know the exact date. It happened to be one month shy of Doug's murder because it was June 13th. It was my husband's birthday, 2010. No, it would have been 2011. I'm sorry. Cause July 2010 is when Doug died. So June, it was almost a, a year, but, um, June 13th, my husband and I are in cooking a meal and saying it's this place on West Marvin and and Vic and Zach take a walk up the road. And I had said I would like to talk to George because um, when I asked Detective Rebecca McFarlane that morning she came to the house, who was the last person my son was known to be with was this George Anderson. And um, that's when I found out that George was back in the picture. I thought that Doug wasn't hanging around him still. So anyway they take a walk over to a friend's house and George is at this friend's house. And so, um, he had told Vic that he would walk down the road with him and talk to him. If Zachariah stayed at the friend's house, because he didn't be scared of them jumping him or something. So they said, okay. So him and George are walking down the road and it's right over by the racetrack in Fredericktown. Vic's texting me. Okay. Who's Vic? He's my second oldest son. Okay. Okay. Doug's brother. Uh huh. So he's texting me, letting me know, you know, uh, to come and pick him up. Well, I'm not getting the calls because, you know, I'm not one of the kids that keep my phone on me like they do. And and it's laying in the other room and we're cooking birthday dinner for my husband and stuff. So a friend comes up and knocks on the door and she says, hey, Vic's trying to get a hold of you. He wants you to pick him up over at the racetrack. I said, oh geez. So her and I hop in the car because we were just getting ready to track the boys down for dinner. And we drive over there, and I really didn't see anybody. And just as I turned around, I saw a couple of figures up the street because it was just about dark. And uh, I said, maybe that's them. And we drove up there, and I stopped the car. And George opens up the door, and he gets in. And I looked up to see if Vic was getting in, too. George scooted right on across the seat. Now, I don't know that that's who this boy is at the time. I just glanced up in my (laughs) rearview mirror. I said, hi, you know, what's up? And because I have four boys. It's not unusual for them to have somebody with them ever when you go to pick them up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So and I hadn't seen George in a long time and he changed quite a bit. So he scoots on over and as I look over to see if Vic's getting in uh, George opens the other door. He gets out and he says uh, I know exactly what happened to Doug and he deserved it and takes off running. Well Vic looked at me and he said now I'm pissed and he takes off running after him. So This girl and I, we just decided to follow the sounds of the dogs barking and I pull up. And just as I go to pull over off the edge of the road, because I'm at the end of the street and at a loss, Vic runs from between these houses, jumps in the car. He says, don't stop, mom, let's go. Well, when I look over my shoulder to pull out, Zachariah's in the car, too. I didn't even hear him get in. And I'm telling the truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. Somebody had walked in that house where Zachariah was to stay to keep the, you know, being any trouble. The oldest son. And um uh they said, what's going on down the street there? You know, blah, blah, blah. Well, Zach said his heart just dropped that he thought instantly that um uh Vic was being killed. He said that when he heard this, he thought that this was a setup and that um Vic was in trouble. So he took off out the door and went to see what was going on and um, that's when he seen my vehicle and got in and, and Vic come running out. Vic said he ran George down. Basically, George was banging on somebody's door. And, and he said, all I did was catch him long enough to hit him twice. The lady opened the door. We fell in. She said, I'm calling the police. I took off and here I am. OK, so I actually had no idea in the first place that was George. So 24 hours go by, almost 48 hours before the police even make a move on this, because apparently, somehow or another, uh, they caught wind of this and decided, hey, this is a good thing to arrest them on. And it was me they wanted. They didn't want my sons. They arrested two boys and turned them loose and everything. And and there wasn't a warrant out for me or anything. And I had stopped in the police station, and I told my husband, I said, there was a call that came across my phone, and it was uh, on my son, Victor. Victor, I'm going to find where your mom lives and I'm going to kill you, you son of a... So it scared me. Doug had been threatened by these guys and I didn't do nothing who left, about I'm it. Sorry, and he who, said, left, who left that message? Um, a guy from St. Louis. Vic had been up there doing some kind of work or something and um, he thought that Vic took something of his and was pissed and come to find out it was at the next door neighbor's house or something. It was a misunderstanding, but I didn't know this yet. I just knew that this guy called my phone said, I'm going to find where your mom lives and I'm going to kill you, you mother, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So I decided to take it in and let the police hear it in case this guy did show up. I want to know what my rights were. or What could I do about it? And uh, so I go in the county sheriff's department and I'm sitting there for probably 20 minutes. There's nobody else in there that I'm waiting in line behind or anything. It's just they're kind of having a little they're kind of in an office over here kind of having a little powwow meeting next thing I know they call me in I go in and I had tears rolling down my face because I'm thinking of Doug and I I wanted them to hear this call they have me set the phone down on the corner of the desk and they pull a paper out they said you know you got a warrant out for your arrest and I said no sir I don't have no warrant out for my arrest no other tickets no nothing you know all of a sudden here's this warrant that they pull out that already has Robin Fulton's name on it Um, then the next day is when they, you know, get the legal warrant from him, but, uh, they pull this paper out and, and they make me sign this form that they don't even listen to why I'm there. I go back and I had told my husband that I was stopping by there. Right. So I go back and they're making me strip down and put me in my, you know, monkey suit. And, uh, I just get dressed out and while they were doing the fingerprints and everything else. And so when I come out and I see David Lewis, I said, hey, Lewis, you need to let me make my phone call or nobody know where I'm at. And just right before they get me to the cell, Lewis says, shut the phones down. Let me back up just a second. While I was getting fingerprinted, that's what made me think of that, that window Blue's sitting there. And he said, well, he says, we got uh, you on film. We, you know, we got uh, evidence that you held that boy against his will. I said, no, you don't have me on film because I've done nothing, you know, wrong. He says, yeah, we got uh, cameras up in the trees. He says, it's seen exactly what you've done. If you don't believe me, I'll go get it and shove it up your ass. Yeah, Wendell Blue said this. And I could not believe Um, I'm being treated like this. So, like I said, just as soon as I got to the cell, Lewis has shut the phones down. And I walk in the cell and the girl "They just hung up from a call. And she goes, honey, you can make a call, but you have to call Collect. I said, no, your phone ain't working. She said, yeah, and she picked it up, and no, it wasn't. He never even let me have the phone call. He told me it was a privilege. It wasn't a law. Well, thank goodness Jeff knew. I mean, Jeff was there in no time to pick me up, and I just kind of thought, ha-ha, you know, because he thought something was suspicious right away that I didn't beat him home from work, and so sure enough, he came come up there, and yes, they had me in jail. So th- this guy well, was in
0: your car For a total of, what, five seconds as he went through in one door and out the other. And they're charging you,
1: saying they had videos. Belonious restraint that I held him against his will.
0: So I obtained some documents relating to Karen's arrest. You're going to learn here in a few minutes that the charge was later dropped, but I'm going to read from some documents that led up to Karen's arrest so you can kind of get an idea of what what was going on here. Uh, The first report here that I'm going to read to you was taken by Fredericktown Officer Atlas. I don't have a first name. This first section here is the report of an interview with George Anderson. This is what it says. I was over at my friend's house last night when Victor Teal and his older brother Zachary had showed up. At first it was alright, but I knew something was going to happen. As soon as I seen who walked through the door, I tried to wait for them to leave, but Victor and Zachariah, it was clear that they weren't leaving without me, so I went outside to talk to them. I talked with Victor while Zachary was flashing a blue-handled double-bladed knife, and stating that he brought it with the intention to cut me up with it before he used it to kill me. While Zachary was stating that Victor made the comment that their mother, Karen Langston, had went out and bought a 45 caliber pistol just for the purpose of shooting and killing me. I asked Victor why they were convinced that I had murdered his little brother, Doug Teal, when I've been questioned and interviewed three times and I've been given a lie detector test and found innocent. Victor's response to that was, I don't care. How many people did it take to kill Doug? I'm asking the questions. After Victor stated that, I knew why Victor and Zachary wouldn't leave and it was because they intended on killing me when I realized I made a huge mistake and agreed to walk and talk with Victor Teal as long as Zachary stayed behind. So Victor Teal and myself had started walking to Hickory Street toward the racetrack and were talking about everything that happened to Doug Teal. When Victor and myself had gotten to the end of Hickory, right next to the racetrack, Victor Teal and Zachary's mother, Karen Langston, had pulled out from behind the pine trees in a newer model golden Chevy Blazer. When I seen Karen Langston pull up, I knew Victor set me up from the beginning, especially when Victor stated, You see that rig? Get in it. I then told him, No, we are walking and talking, I am not getting in there. After I told Victor that, He grabbed me from behind and forced me into the back seat on the driver's side, then slid all the way over to the passenger side and started praying that the child locks weren't on because I knew in my heart and stomach that if I couldn't escape Victor Teal, Zachary and Karen Langston were going to kill me. I then heard Karen ask Victor Teal who was walking up the street, and when I heard Victor Teal say Zachary, I tried the door, and when it opened, I saw Karen Langston reach down in the floorboard of her blazer, I ran as though my life depended on it because at that time it did. I started running down Marlow Street, turned onto Ash Street, and then started cutting through yards. I went to the first door I seen and tried to open it when I realized it was locked. Victor Teal was on me in a headlock. I then banged on the door while trying to break Victor Teal's grip. Then an elderly woman answered the door and she stated that she was calling the police and that's when Victor Teal had struck me in my left eye and and let me go and I went into the elderly woman's back door where I waited for someone I knew then I went around the front to talk with the elderly woman and she stated well we don't really know what she stated the document cuts off right there okay so that's like the first section um, they talked to a couple of other people another source Daniel Tinsley confirmed some of what George had said Victor confronted George and said, Got a ride coming? George answered, No. Victor replied, Better call one then. And they eventually got George to step outside and start asking George questions. Then Zach showed George a knife. It was blue and had two blades. Zach said, I brought this just for you. Some more time went by and Zach referred to the knife once more and said, I am going to hack your body parts off. I don't want to just stab you. Victor eventually persuaded him just to take a walk with him. George agreed then to start walking toward the racetrack, then a gold blazer pulled out from behind the bushes and Victor pulled George into the car. At that time, Zach started to walk toward the blazer, so me and Miles followed and cut through some backyards to where George ran to. We seen Victor leaving the back door after he punched George right in the eye, and Victor said to Zack, get the car. The cops will be here soon so when the so we have a report from the officer and this is uh what the officer reported i was dispatched to the address i'm not going to name the address um upon arrival i noted several subjects standing in the road between the two addresses and he says i spoke to maxine Mueller, the caller from the address and she told me that she heard someone trying to get into her back door and said she could hear male voices outside, violently arguing. She opened the door, there were two males she did not know, and that she was going to call the police. Um, The officer spoke to George Anderson, and he appeared to be distraught and had been crying. He says, he told me he had been at a friend's residence by the racetrack, was confronted by Zach Teal, who was the son of Karen Langston. George Anderson said that Karen Langston held him responsible for her son Doug Teal's death. And then George Anderson said that Zach had a blue-handled butterfly knife and was brandishing it in a threatening manner. And so the the officer told George Anderson that in order for a report to be made, I would need statements from him and his two witnesses, Frazier and Tinsley, and both witnesses agreed to fill out statement forms in reference to the incident. This whole case is complicated by uh, a statement that Zach gave uh, to police as he was arrested on this. And so I'm going to read you from a statement that he gave um, that was not included in the public documents that I requested from the city of Fredericktown. Uh, this was uh, a copy that was given to me by Karen. This is in regards to the incident with George Anderson over at T.C. Evans' house concerning me, Victor Teal, and my mother, Karen Langston. That afternoon, me and Victor walked up the road to T.C.'s house to visit for a while. Little did we know George Anderson was there. I didn't even recognize him, but Vic pointed him out to me. I stayed inside with Vic for a while to try to calm him down, but he insisted on trying to get George to talk to me. I was upset at even being that close to him, so I went outside in the front yard and started talking to some other people that were there. Eventually, George and Vic came outside, and George tried to talk to me. I told him I was too upset to talk to him. He said he would walk down the road and talk to Vic. I told him that I had a pocket knife that I would let him take with him if it would make him feel safer, he said no, he didn't want it. Some of the other people that were there wanted to see it because they thought it was neat, So we started passing it around and talking about it while Vic and George walked down the road. A few minutes later, Donnie Perry pulled up and said that there was a dark-colored SUV parked down the road. I noticed earlier that George had been texting on the phone, so I thought George might have been setting my brother up. Me and Miles then took off running down the road to see what was going on. When we got down there, I noticed it was a blazer. I asked Miles what color it was. He said gold. I then saw the stickers on the back window and told Miles that it was my mother and that we needed to find George because I believed she might kill him. We took off chasing the blazer When we finally caught up to it, Vic was already getting back in, so I hopped in and we took off. My mother also had a loaded 45 pistol with her. I found out that Vic had been texting her and had her waiting at the end of the road the whole time. I don't know what else to do to help, but I'll try. I had no intention of harming George or from keeping him from going anywhere. I also had no knowledge of my mother waiting at the end of the road. There is at least 15 people that I know that I stayed at the house. Okay, that's the statement that Zachary made, but was it the truth? Zach would then claim that he made that statement under duress. Here's a message that I was able to obtain from Karen that Zach had sent after giving that statement. I think this was an email some sort of message it's printed out it says bro i know you don't understand and i will regret this forever but she threw me under the bus i hired an actual lawyer all she had to do was say i was still at tc's and they would have dropped mine in the beginning because she wouldn't tell my attorney that i would have done 27 flat and i don't have that much time left in me bro the only thing they really have against mom is my statement and when i don't show up to testify against her the prosecution is screwed I do know what I'm doing. You're right though. If she takes it to trial, they will hang her. She needs to plead out, but she won't listen. The prosecutor is counting on me to hang her, and granted she threw me under the bus, i never do that to you guys. The statement was made under duress with the promise of my charges being dropped. Her lawyer will eat that statement alive. Anyway, I need this not to become public because I'm still working on some things. Think about this. How long did she have to help me? I got nothing but abandon. Love you, bro. What a crazy incident this was. Right? You've got a couple of brothers still reeling from Doug's death. They believe that George Anderson had something to do with that. They arrive at this gathering, a party or whatever, and they see George. They confront him, apparently in a violent or threatening type of way. I mean, at least this is my interpretation of the events. We're only getting information from different points of view. And there's some room for nuance there. But we know there ended up being a foot chase, and that foot chase wound up at the door of an elderly woman who didn't know the people engaged in a fight at her threshold. Clearly, a fight took place. Victor popped George in the eye. I think it's safe to say that George feared Victor and ran. So I believe a crime took place there. The context of that fight is saturated by grief. It's prompted by the belief that a sibling's life was taken, that a brother was thrown in the highway to be hit by a car. And then years go by with no accountability. If you're Victor or Zach, you've come to believe that not only was your brother murdered, but that police have stopped pursuing justice. And this is where I want to get on my soapbox a little bit. There's been a lot of looking the other way in Madison County and in the surrounding area. I've been told there's a sense of apathy regarding certain cases. Timmy Dees is an example. Durante Martin is an example. There are others. There is a sentiment, apparently among law enforcement, that if a person dies as a result of a drug-related motive, then that's just the drug dealers taking care of themselves. In other words, street justice isn't preventable, nor is it worth the time and resources to solve those crimes. They'll take care of themselves. Now, to be clear, no one to my knowledge has ever suggested that the motive of Doug's death is drug-related, but the people that Karen and others believe might be responsible are involved in the drug trade. So what we see here in this situation is the type of thing that can happen when law enforcement doesn't pursue justice. It evokes desperate actions. Several witnesses here indicate that Victor was seeking answers from George Anderson about Doug's death. I'm not saying that's okay, I'm not saying that a crime didn't occur, what I'm saying is that human response to deaths are strong. And not investigating cases has consequences, this is an example. But the question we're examining today is what role did Karen play in all of this? Was she part of some setup to kidnap Anderson? Based on these statements it seems unlikely. I mean, Zach stated that Karen came to the scene and had possession of a gun, but that does not mean she was involved in a kidnapping plot. Zach stated they didn't know George Anderson would be at this party. Zach stated later he learned that Vic and Karen had been texting for her to come pick him up. And if such texts showed a plot, that would have been part of the evidence collected, but no such evidence was submitted. Karen said she was called by a neighbor saying that her sons were trying to reach her. This means she wasn't aware of what was going on unless the neighbor told her, and if that was the case, that evidence would have been presented. It was not. None of the evidence supported that a gun was shown or that a threat was made to George Anderson. Anderson did not state as much. He feared harm, he said, and he bolted out the door when he allegedly saw Karen reach down, which, honestly, I don't know how he'd have seen something like that as he was moving across the back seat. Karen's sons got themselves into trouble with the law on multiple occasions. This wasn't the only example, but that doesn't mean Karen was involved in a plot to hold George against his will. No evidence in the documents supplied to me by the city of Fredericktown show any evidence that Karen committed felonious restraint. George Anderson was only in her vehicle for a matter of seconds.
1: this assistant prosecuting attorney okay the prosecutor uh i believe terry andrew or andrew terry he was always over in cape so this assistant prosecutor um scott Killian, ran the prosecutor's office that was another thing i mean anywhere i did contact would say honey you need to contact the prosecutor i couldn't this assistant prosecutor was attacking me from day one he just wanted to hang me bad so um because of me getting finding too much out on my son's death, come to find out, you know, this I'm going to. I even changed venue, but that doesn't really matter because it's the same people. Just you got to travel further. I changed from Fredericktown to Saint Genevieve, but this assistant prosecuting attorney just I could not figure out why he just hated me so bad, and I, I had heard, you know, that he was paid three thousand dollars under the table to keep me from investigating Doug's murder, and that I was learning too much too fast. But I didn't know if it was true or not. So I had hired a lawyer um, from Farmington thinking I was bettering myself by, you know, Blake Dudley. Well, he charges me $3,000 and uh, um, there's a preliminary hearing. I'm going to court every month just to be rescheduled to the next month. So the preliminary hearing comes up and they don't even tell me it's the preliminary hearing in case I wanted to bring the girl that was with me uh who would have been my only witness that I never tried to hold him against, you know, his will mm-hmm. if they had him convinced into, you know, telling a lie. But he got on the witness stand and told the truth. He said, she's never tried to hold me against my will. It should have been thrown out. My lawyer didn't say a word. All of a sudden, uh the judge, Robin Fulton, he's uh the two of them are sitting there and I'm I'm looking at my lawyer, wondering why he's not, well, it's thrown out then. I mean, it would have been anywhere else. Well, all of a sudden, this assistant prosecuting attorney, Scott Killian, says the state will take over. Just because she forgot to lock the childproof doors doesn't mean she didn't intend on hurting him. Well, there was no evidence. There was no crime. There was no ca- it should have been thrown out. Instead, it marched onward to trial. Um, I do have this the, with the trial. Yes, I do oh. have the disc. Okay, yeah, I disc- got it. I've got to see this. I, I, I've got the disc of the preliminary hearing where George says I never held him against his will. Okay, so this goes on. I mean, we're talking two, three years. I'm being drugged in and out of court. I get rid of this lawyer. Okay, and I um, hired Dwight Robbins. Dwight knew that Doug had been murdered. He also knew that you know the town was dirtier than dirty. He's the prosecutor right now, but. He doesn't. The thing is about him is he doesn't they know he won't play their games. You know, he's not dirty. And so they leave him basically out of um the technical crap, even though he knows it. You know, there's no doubt in my mind. This is his hometown. He's getting ready to retire there. You know, the man knows the dirtiness that takes place there. But he stays out of it. Well, he's my lawyer now, and he's going to become the prosecutor again. Um, And so Oh, it just so happened that my trial date was like July 15th. How convenient, right? The day that my son's murdered. Because I guess they thought my true colors would come out. Well, I'm just fed up with this completely. And this is going on like, you know, three years. I've been drugging and out of court for all this. And my boys had done been let off. But now you get this. When they had my oldest son, Zachariah, he had been in some prior trouble misdemeanor stuff that added up to felony charges. And I mean, misdemeanor, like, uh, improper, ill-registered plates on his car and stuff that he wouldn't get taken care of. So they told him that he needed to write a letter against me, or they were going to make him go do his full time of twenty-seven years in jail. So he writes a letter against me that says, "I bought this forty-five uh, to go out and hunt George down and kill him." Now this is my son. Yes, my oldest boy. They got when they arrested him. And had him in jail. They had him write this letter against me that said I did buy this forty-five to hunt George down and kill him. Okay. Now at the same time, mind you, he put a letter on the computer to my second oldest, Victor, and he said, "I know you guys will never forgive me." He said, "But they want Mom bad. This assistant prosecuting attorney wants Mom really bad." I got this now. I got this in writing. This is all I got proof right here on this. And he said, "Uh." Um, I was under duress. They made me write this statement against her. And I'm just letting you know, um, don't make this letter go public yet, because I'll probably wind up dead. But I wrote this letter against mom because they were standing over me. I wrote it in distress. They made me write a letter against mom because they want her that bad. So anyway, so not not only did he write this letter against me, and this is what they had against me. Your, Your oldest son wrote a letter against you. And I'm like, no, my son wouldn't do that. Well, no, he wouldn't have done it, except they were standing over him, going to hang him and send him off, you know, to prison for 27 years and blah, blah, blah. And it makes you wonder how many they have sent off that are innocent that are locked up right now. Anyway. OK, so I'm going on. Um, on I, I I don't see this other letter yet that says the reason he did it was because they were standing over him and made him write it against me. OK, I, and. Uh, but as soon as I seen that, I ran a copy of it and I've got it right here. But um so they ended up, you know, letting Zach off the hook and they cleaned his slate and they um Victor didn't have a slate to clean. They just didn't want him. It wasn't him they were after, they were after me. So um uh, here
0: so comes you it. have you have the supposed victim said that this never she never helped never me against cared. my will. You had, your own, you had your your witness who was there in the front seat who said that this never happened.
1: Right. But she didn't ever even got to say that because they yeah. didn't tell me it was a preliminary hearing, so I wouldn't be able to bring any evidence or have that witness show up. But it didn't matter. They didn't expect him to get on that stand and, and say what he did. And he said, she's never held me against my will. I got in the vehicle and got out. She never tried to keep me in it. She never held if me against my no will. If there's no
0: victim, then why are...
1: Uh, okay, I don't know. I, I don't want to... So I hire another lawyer, of course. I let that first one go. There goes 3,000 out the window. Hire another lawyer and everything, Dwight Robbins, and uh, um. so here comes the day that I'm going to go to... I got to go do 120 in prison shock treatment, right? This is my trial day, and it happened to be the, the day they murdered Doug on. night before I was going to prison, um, I put something on the internet. And I said, I have, abs- I said, all right, guys, I'm fed up as fed up as I can be. I said, I'm probably going to kill myself. I said, because I'm not going to prison for something I didn't do. I said, and tomorrow I um, am going to be sentenced to 120 days shock treatment in prison. Um, I said, uh, because this assistant prosecuting attorney has been attacking me for some reason, um, for investigating my sons. But anyway, so I put that on, um, the internet and oh my gosh my friends were coming back on it heavy they just were like what is going on i said i don't know i've not done anything except investigate my son's death and next thing i know um i'm up for 100 day 120 day shock treatment in prison now also backing up just a hair um part of this going to court every month just to be rescheduled to the next month i was given two different plea bargains by this uh assistant prosecutor one of them was uh uh, reduced to a Class A misdemeanor stalking. I said, "There's no way in hell. That's worse than felonious restraint." I said, "Stalking means that I was around every corner. I was, you know, um, uh, just daily. I was here, you know." I said, "I'm not taking uh, no, you know, I'm I'm not accepting anything I didn't do. You, you know, just carry on." My lawyer was worried. My oldest son was worried. He said, "Mom, maybe you ought to, you know." And I said, "I'm not doing it." You know, I'm just going to praise to God. I am not admitting to something I didn't do. The day comes and um, Dwight asked me that morning. He says, Karen, did you put something on internet last night? And I I cringed. I said, yes, sir, I did. And he says uh, something about him being paid under the table or blah, blah. I said, yeah. He goes, well, take it off for now. He said, "Uh, until this is over with, he said, because he didn't even show up today. I said, what? He said, I said, well, the truth hurts, doesn't it? He said, I don't know what we're going to do. Have a seat right here in the hall and I'll get back with you. So about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, there's a a lady that came out um, from the attorney general's office, which is really strange because I kept in touch with Chris Costner like he was a family member and he didn't help me with nothing. But anyway, this lady, she says, hi, Karen. She says, you know, I'm such and such from attorney general's office. She said, I have no idea what's going on here. I am not familiar with your case at all. She said, I'd like to take it and review it. And she said, and I should be back with your lawyer by the end of this week or beginning of next week. Two days. Two days. She was in contact with my lawyer. out, it She said, there was no crime committed, so there can't be any sentence sentenced. I mean, after she reviewed it, and I thought, you son of a bitch. But all they did was... Uh, throw it out. And I won. I mean, I felt good about the fact that I won. Did you find out how the AG's office got involved? No, they were there at the, um, when I went to court the next day and the lawyer asked me if I had put something on there and he asked me to remove it, put or you know, uh, remove it for the time being that this, uh, Scott Killian didn't show up today because, um, of something being put on the internet, but this lady was at the court. And so when, Dwight said something about, you know, I guess whenever it came up that uh, the assistant prosecutor didn't show up, you know, that I was out in the hall waiting, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it fell into the attorney general's hands. She came out and said, you know, she'd review it and get back with Dwight Robbins. And within like two days, she called him and said, throw it out. had been, you know, there's no crime committed here. Unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable. <laughs> Karen Langston lost a son. Four months later, she lost her home. Later, she went toe-to-toe with the cops and courts who tried to bring a felony against her with no evidence. During all that time, she has sought answers for her son Doug. She believes she has some of them, but no one with power or authority will take her seriously. I don't know if Karen's house was intentionally set on fire, I don't know that the charges filed against Karen were the result of her digging on Doug's case, but you can certainly understand Karen believing so. What I do know is Doug Teal's death is engulfed in odd circumstances. Hit-and-run charges filed against the woman who struck Doug's body were dropped, Doug's body included injuries that can't be explained by the collision with the vehicle. People came forward saying Doug was murdered, but after a short investigation, the case was closed. One person of interest has only one alibi, a girlfriend. Then Karen's house burned to the ground. She was given no explanation as to how it was determined that an electric heater caused that fire. Then Karen was wrongly accused of felonious restraint, a case that moved forward despite the alleged victim saying he was never held against his will. None of this is normal. But this is Madison County. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. Wallace Files is a production of LeadHound Publishing, LLC. It's written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Bob Miller. Music by Tyler Grafe.